Solve Your Cash Flow Woes with David Safir, episode 38. Are you ready to make your law firm a profit-generating machine that will free up your time and skyrocket your impact? With more than two decades of business growth experience and having proven that you can be successful while prioritizing your family and your impact, introducing the Profit with Law podcast. I am your host, the creator of the firm differentiator 10x effect, Moshe Amsel. Hello and welcome to another episode of Profit with Law. I am your host, Moshe Amsel, and today I am deviating from our normal routine of me doing a solo episode every Tuesday, and I'm bringing you a guest interview. Uh, I love talking about cash, um, cash flow and cash management solutions. And I came across a fellow by the name of David Safir, and David Safir focuses on solving cash flow problems. Uh, He's a business consultant, and he's been doing this for many years. And uh, recently, in 2018, he started the Cash Management Project uh, to start working on articulating the problem as well as the solutions to businesses with cash flow issues. So I was intrigued enough to have a conversation with David and I really enjoyed speaking with him. Uh, He's very articulate, uh, really clear on explaining what the problems are as well as his solutions. So uh, I figured it would be a good thing to bring him here onto the show. Now, here's the official bio. David is a former corporate executive who now focuses on working with company owners to increase profits. He specializes in implementing simple and understandable cash management systems that bring cash flow, predictability, and peace of mind. David started the Cash Management Project in 2018 to help more business leaders learn about cash management and the critical role it plays in their company. David fell in love with his wife, when she helped him audition for a high school musical. David is a native New Yorker, but he's lived with his family in Salt Lake City, Utah for almost 20 years. So with that out of the way, I would like to turn you on to the interview with David and I. And um, and I really enjoyed this conversation, and you'll see why. David had a really easy way of breaking down some comp- some complicated or potentially complicated business financial statement issues and explaining them in a way that you should be able to easily understand them. Uh, I think that you are really going to appreciate this interview. So without further ado, here you go. Let's cue that up. David and I, here we go. Janelle, David, welcome to the show. Thank you. I really appreciate being here, Moshe. It is our pleasure to have you as well, and and as we do with with every guest, we really appreciate the time that you give to share your knowledge and expertise with our listeners and and your story. So, talking about your story, and people probably haven't heard of you, so why don't we start with just a little bit about yourself and what you do and and how you got there, and and uh, anything else that you want to throw in that might uh, that might be some entertainment for us. Wonderful. Well, let me see how entertaining I can be. 
you know, Moshe, I have a corporate background. When I got out of business school, I went to work for large corporations, but I always wanted to work with small companies. And over time, um, I started getting requests from friends to help them out with their business. And so I started up David Spear International in, well, about 15 years ago. So I could have a business entity to charge clients and, and work with them. And on and off, I've done it part-time, full-time. But what I always come down to, it's working with business owners who are stuck. That they've grown a business to a point they're going, I'm not sure what's going on. We, we've stopped growing. Or um, a lot of times as we've run out of cash, how do we break up the bottleneck of cash? Because we're... Uh, our accountant's telling us we've made a profit, not only a little profit, but a big profit, but we're constantly short on cash. And I noticed this pattern happening. So in November of 2018, I said, listen, I'm going to form the cash management project, which is dedicated to providing knowledge to business owners and to CPAs, bookkeepers, the people who support the business owners in the area of finance to say, let me give you some more education on cash, cash flow and cash management. So that's my general background. Um, the only other thing to mention is I've worked for some like huge companies, Morgan Stanley, Kodak, Seagate. And one thing that's in common with all these companies and I have profit and loss responsibility none of them ever asked me to deal with cash. And so it's one of the challenges we have is the people who come out of a large corporate background have no idea how to manage cash because they've never been asked to. So there you go. That's the opening. I don't know how entertaining it was, but that's a little bit of background. It's definitely, it's definitely always interesting to see how somebody's journey led them to where they are. Myself, um, as well, I, you know, my background was not initially uh, helping businesses grow, and and in the, and now particularly helping law firms grow. Mm. You know, I started in the IT industry straight out of high school, and just kind of uh, life took took me on a on a on a particular ride, and and that's you know that's where I how I ended up to where I am today. Um, and for those listeners who are new to the show, uh, you can go back to the first uh, uh, episodes one through three. Of of profit with law, where I talk about talk about my background, my history, and um, the specific methodology, the firm differentiator 10x system, to really understand how how I got started. But I love hearing how somebody else got started and 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 their background, just because everybody's journey is different. And mm -hmm. it, if it's interesting to me, it's got to be interesting to the people listening as well. So thank you for filling in the gaps on this cash. Uh, management project that you started in 2018 sounds like a wonderful thing. And I'd like to dig into that because in my own experience working with law firm owners, this is a common, a common problem in the legal industry as well, where a firm on the outside looks like it's growing really nicely. They have an abundance of clients coming in. Their staff is growing, got a gorgeous office. And then when 
it gets to really looking behind the scenes and checking out the dirty underwear come to find out that they're struggling paycheck to paycheck to meet payroll and they're borrowing money from from this credit card and that home equity line of credit and you know they're they're basically hawking their personal lives to keep the the firm afloat and this is exactly what you're describing as this this cash issue so why don't we start by maybe trying to explain to us how does somebody get into this cash problem in the first place? You know, if oh, the math... a... go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> if the math is working, you know, like if the if if on paper it's profitable, in theory the cash should be there. So so what's really happening? All right. Well, that's that's a great question, and I jumped the gun because I get really excited when I talk about this stuff, and I couldn't tell you exactly what's happening within a given firm without really taking a look at the numbers, but in general, and I'm actually writing an article about this right now that describes why you can see on paper that you're making a profit, but, it, but you don't have any cash in your bank account. But here's what happens in general. Um, number one, profit and loss does not have anything to do for with most businesses cash position because a lot of firms, especially over a certain amount, you'd have to talk to your CPA about this. When you report, you're reporting in this theoretical world called accrual accounting. And accrual accounting throws normal life out the window. And it makes you force revenue and expenses of what's called accounting periods. I hate getting into this because it is so confusing. Um, I'm not an accountant. I did go to business school. It really took me working with small companies to see how bad it can shift around things. So for example, when you're talking revenue, if you're in accrual accounting, the day you send the invoice is the day you sold it, quote unquote. So if you sell it today, and it's the end of September, we are talking about this and you're giving your clients 30-day terms, your cash is delayed for 30 days. So do all of your clients pay on time? No. I've yet to meet a law firm whose clients pay when they're supposed to. So what happens? That 30 days turns into 60, but meanwhile, you've seen the revenue today. So that's one thing. Uh, should, should we pause for a second there? Sure. Do you have any yeah, questions I, about delayed? Well, I, I just cash want to coming in. Yeah, I just want to reiterate um, to your point that a lot of firms have a large accounts receivable. So, uh, looking at your accounts receivable is another way to view what David is describing, because the money that's in that accounts receivable that's uncollected is for work that was already performed. So you've already had the expense of paying your employees to do that work right. and tying up your resources, including your office space for that work. And yet you haven't collected the money on it. So you're kind so, of acting as a bank for your clients yeah. in a sense until they pay you. So you, yeah, you've jumped ahead to part two where your, your revenue is going out, but your, your expenses are right here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have prepaid expenses. So it's actually hitting you even worse. A absolutely. And, um, and part of the 
so it's easy to figure out how big the problem is. If you take the amount that you receive, you mentioned that a lot of law firms have really big receivables and you ask yourself, well, how much do I bill a month? And so if you bill a hundred thousand dollars a month as a firm and you've got a $300,000 receivable, I'm doing real simple math here. You divide 300,000 by a hundred thousand, it comes out to exactly three. So you've got three months of receivables. So you need that much money to be able to pay in cash, to be able to pay your expenses. So then you ask, well, so I'll just sell more and I'll fix my problem. But if you start thinking about it, when you sell more, when is your money coming in? Down the road. And your expenses are right here. So by selling more, you actually accentuate the problem, especially if your expenses grow as you sell more. You have to add staff or there's other types of overhead of selling. So growth, you ask, hey, one of the things you said is nice big firm. They look like they're growing, nice offices, etc. Unfortunately, success, if you're not structured properly, will create a bigger and bigger cash hole and a bigger and bigger need for capital. Now, David, um, this all makes sense um, to me and I'm sure to, my, to our listeners as well. But there are two questions that I have from what you've shared that I imagine there are some people in the audience that have this question as well. Okay. And my first, the questions are not related, but I don't want to forget them. So I'm going to throw them both at you at the same time and let you um, uh, try to answer them in, in succession. So the first question is, is you specifically pointed out that this is if somebody is using accrual accounting. However, right. many small businesses are using cash basis accounting. Um, and that means that their PNL they're looking at is a cash basis PNL, and yet they're still struggling with cash flow. So that's one question is, um, you know, how do we deal with the, or how do we explain the situation there? And is it different than what you just described? The second question that I have is you described a scenario where in theory, the problem is a 30 to 60 day window, assuming that, I mean, let's say that you're collecting your money after within 60 days, then you have a 60 day window problem. And as long as you have a way to overcome that 60 day window problem, that should be problem solved. So why is it that this problem is more seems or appears more perpetual? Okay. I'm going to answer your first question. Second question first, because it has more to do Perfect. with what we were just talking about. Um, your window, there's two things. Number one, um, my experience with attorneys is that a high number of uh, receivables are never collected. So it's a false indicator. When you say you've got $300,000 of receivable, you really need to look at your timing. And if you've got $150,000 or $200,000 that are out six months, that is... And that averages in with your really close receivables, that means you're basically writing off, and that's money that you're never going to see. And my understanding that it, with the attorneys I've talked to, it's a huge problem mm -hmm. because judges don't like it when attorneys go after their clients. So you might have a client screening issue, and I'm not an expert on this, I don't know how to deal with it, but that's one of the big issues that attorneys might have. 
Um, before yeah, I the answer problem the other part, even, you're sort of nodding your head. Is, the, does that sound Yeah, familiar? the problem is even worse, actually, because in, in many states, there are rules not allowing mm -hmm. an attorney to get out of representation of a client. So you might have a client who's not paying and you're being forced to continue to make the problem worse yeah. by continuing to represent them. So uh, definitely th this is an issue in specific in, in specific um, practice areas. Um, so it's not necessarily an, an issue in every practice area. Yeah. So, but age, aging receivables is for every business. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so th that's part of it. Um, the, the other thing is, is if you're growing, that 60 days number is getting bigger and bigger and bigger each month. And that's why it seems to be a continual process problem. Shrinking has a different set of problems, but people just don't correlate growth with cash problems. Right. But, but let's turn to the part number two is what you asked, or the first question, mm -hmm. uh, hence or second is about, all right, now we've turned on cash-based accounting. And most software packages, it's really easy. You just click a switch and boom, you can see the difference. And sometimes, depending on how your business is run, there's absolutely no business or you're just running it, there's no difference. And um, if you're running your business in cash-based accounting, you're always going to see it like this. And so then you say, okay, so what's going on with my cash that doesn't show up on my P&L? And to see that, you need to go to your balance sheet. Because this funny world of accounting, there's certain things when you spend the money, it doesn't show up on the P&L. And there's three key things that come to mind. Number one, when there's an owner and the owner takes what's called a draw, let's say it's $10,000, that draw does not show up on the P&L. That is hits your balance sheet in owner's equity. So $10,000 just went out the window. It stayed in one, it stayed in your other pocket, right? Your personal pocket, but it came out of the business pocket but it won't show up on your P&L. The P&L will look like you made $10,000 more than you actually did. So that's number one. Number two, a big one is if you have to invest in assets, computers, furniture, um, a building, you buy a building and, and that ash, asset needs to be depreciated, vehicles, um, that has to be expensed over time. And again, this is all this theoretical accounting stuff. I'm going to make another extreme example. You've got computer equipment worth $120,000. I believe depreciation schedules for computers are five years, three years, five years, five years, five years. So you divide 120,000 by five and that comes out to $24,000 a year will show up on your expenses. So you just gave the computer guy $120,000 for a bunch of equipment, but you only see $24,000 as an expense for computers that year. And if you're not paying attention, you won't realize that other $100,000 disappeared. You sort of, A, have to keep track of this, but B, you can look at your balance sheet and look at the assets. 
and see, ah, here it says computers, $120,000. And then it says depreciation on the computers, $24,000. This is a fairly easy concept, but if you haven't been exposed to it on a regular basis, it won't come to you automatically. Third big one that really messes people up is loans. If you borrow money from the bank, let's say it's $100,000, you don't report that $100,000 as a income to the bank, right? You didn't earn it, you're just borrowing it. And so it doesn't show up as income on your P&L, your profit and loss. You won't ever see it there. What you'll see is a liability on your balance sheet. But if it's $100,000 and you're making $1,000 payment for a hundred months. That means during 12 months, you're making a $12,000 payment to repay the loan. Well, just like it was an income when you brought it in, when you send it back to the bank, you don't get to expense it. So you've just expensed $12,000 this year to pay back the capital from the loan and it does not show up on your P&L, but all that money's going out the door you do get ex to expense the interest. So that'll be a clue when you look at the PL and you see interest, ah, I have to repay the interest. But it can be a huge drain on your cash that you're just not taking into account. Those are three big ones. I, you might have other ones, Moshe, that, you, that come to mind, but more than anything else, that's where I see the problems. Yeah, I mean the only other uh, problem, or not not necessarily a problem, but but a contributing factor to the cash problem that I see is in the expense side of the business. So I see firm owners who think that they have to have a gorgeous office, and they you know they they take a right. long lease on an office space that they are going to eventually fill up. And now they're paying significantly more every month than they need to because they're in a really nice space that's really expensive mm -hmm. and there's a bunch of space in it that's not being used. And that's a, a constant drain every month on cash that um, could have been used elsewhere or been earmarked as profit. And the other is anything that they're doing to try to grow. So uh, you're spending money on a marketing campaign you're spending money on uh, your your hiring staff to to be able to take on more work. Those expenses are in anticipation of future revenues. Now those do show up on the PNL, so it's not like right. you look. And for those who don't know, PNL is profit and loss, also income statement. It's an accounting reference to basically the a report that shows uh, your revenues minus your expenses and your final profit for the firm. Right. So that is, I mean, in my, in my experience, those are some common contributing factors to where the firm says, Oh, you know, things are doing great, but we still, we, we can't catch our tail because you're, you've got these expenses that you keep adding to when it, instead you should kind of be I mean, potentially kind of be staying put and, and letting things catch up and, and right. actually enjoy some of that profitability to catch, catch up with yourself before taking right. the next move. 
Okay, so can I throw out a couple of things? And you're right. Sure. The reason I didn't mention those because they're on the profit and loss statement. That's they sort of become uh, obvious, but those two expenses in particular, in my mind, have multiplier expenses. Um, what else do you need to do when you rent a big space? Well, utilities. You got to heat it. You got to cool it. Um, you've got to clean it. And so you've got that multiplier expense, which a lot of people don't take into account before they move in. And then you got yeah, to hire some part of me. You got to furnish it, furnish it, uh, hire people eventually, which all is a cash drain. So all these things and then the marketing also you now marketing to me is more insidious because it's a hidden expense. Marketing almost never can be done with zero um, time commitment. I, I know there's marketing people over here that'll say, David, but wait a minute. There's no, doesn't take any time for, we'll do it all. We'll do it all. But there's setup time, there is review time, especially for attorneys. Anything that's being said in their name has to be reviewed to make sure you're not running afoul of laws. There is overhead time to doing marketing campaigns in addition to the hard cost. And yet we don't really track that, but it can be a contributing factor because of billable hours and other things that you're not generating revenue because you're spending time on marketing. I don't know if you've seen that one or not. Yeah. And really the other thing is, is that marketing itself doesn't translate into business, right? Oh, marketing yeah. marketing yeah. can potentially send you leads, but then those leads need to be sold and you know you need to be need to convert them you need to follow yep. up with them and and it could be chances are somebody who you got their attention today it might become a customer 24 months from now and you need to have a war chest of money to fund that marketing right. for the to just keep going for that period of time until until the the business follows through so that you know that's that's it's it's all it's all in the name of growth of the firm but all these things start to add up and they start yeah. to add up to a very not, not pretty picture. So um, one of the things that um, I just laugh about, but also is really a challenge is marketers. When you're sold something like, listen, it's going to cost you $10,000, but you're going to get, uh, you know, you just get one client worth $10,000 and you've paid for it all. Well, it, it's not really true because every single client has got an, only a marginal profit built in. And that's where the real cash comes from. It's the difference between your revenue and your cost. It's this small bucket. And so um, one of the articles I've got in my hand is, head is what's called a cash, um, a cash break even analysis. How long does it take you from when you put the cash out for anything, let's call it a marketing campaign, until you finally break even for that cash. And that's what you alluded to. If you spend the money today and you don't land the client for two years or you land the client tomorrow, but the cash comes in over time, or if, if you're an attorney who gets paid on the outcome of a suit or on the outcome, you have no idea of how long it's going to take to really get you that return on investment and break even, let alone exceed the amount of cash you put in. Right. 
And that leads us to one other area that you you haven't spoken about at all, and um, I didn't even think about talking about until now, but it's Mm. definitely come up in uh, previous episodes of the podcast, is lawyers and law firms that take on contingency clients, which might have been what you're alluding to to when the case closes. But a contingency client is essentially where you take on a client with the promise that there is going to be some sort of cash settlement at the end. And when that happens, the firm is going to get a percentage of that settlement. And there you are completely footing the bill of all the expenses for that client until that settlement comes in. And it's not a sure thing. Some of some of the cases close without a settlement, without a or without a, a, a judgment, and mm-hmm. there's there is no money. And sometimes it comes through, but it takes time. And it could be, you know, a quick one, or it could take eighteen months, two years, three years. You know, with appeals, it could take even longer. The the money doesn't just because a judgment happens doesn't mean the money's coming. So, a firm who's who's working purely on contingency is extremely difficult to operate from a cash flow perspective because you're always I mean, you've got to have a way to come up with that cash until the money comes through in in the cases that you're running uh, but even if you do it just as a portion of your business what i've found is is that um, the firm owner doesn't under doesn't know how to figure out how much contingency they can handle so you're and, referring to like forecasting time and and money that needs to go into a case correct so if you know if you know that your profitability for the firm for your hourly work is a certain amount and therefore you can afford to have that money go towards the contingency work you know that what ends up happening is is they take on more contingency than they have capacity for and end up having a cash shortfall because too much time is being spent on contingency instead of directly billable hours right most of these firms, I'm guessing, don't really try to do a formal forecasting and analysis. Yeah, my and, experience with working with clients is that almost none of them are doing that. Yes, right. And that is that is probably a good assumption for listeners. <laughs> listeners on the show, I my guess is is about ninety percent, if not more, of our listener base is not doing forecasting mm-hmm. and analysis. You know, and it's interesting because. I've dealt with other businesses that have longer receivables and it's not the first one or the second one that's difficult to handle. Your core business is is generating enough cash that you really don't notice number one or number two. And then you realize that you're enjoying the work or you're looking at the payday at the end. And all of a sudden you've added so many that you just go, what did I do? how did I end up with basically this being such a big drain that it's impacting the other part of my business? And, and I'm not referring to lawyers in particular or the law practice of law in particular, but this is with other types of companies as well, where all of a sudden you're going, wait a minute, I've got to salvage my course. So what do I do on the upside part to maybe cut it short? And it's not necessarily 100% of the best interest of my client. Um, And I guess in the case of an attorney, uh, a settlement that maybe is made that, you know, there's a lot of gray in accounting and in the law. And maybe you say, okay, we'll settle because really um, 
it's not bad for your client and it's good for the firm to just get the settlement over with. I, I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing, but I imagine that's some of the pressure that your listeners feel. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you basically said that, that, you know, you start off taking one or the first one or two don't really affect you. I think mm-hmm. it's even worse than that. I think that what happens is, is that you venture out and say, Hey, I'm going to take a, a contingency case. You take one and you work it through till the end and you get the payday. You know, you, you experience what happens at the end and you forget mm-hmm. that you just spent nine months of expenses on it because you've already paid for that. You've already figured out how to pay for it. And now okay. you've got this big payday check and now you're flush with all this cash and that felt really good. So now you, you think that this is a really good business model and you're starting to seek out those contingency cases and that's that becomes something that you prefer over a regular case without recognizing what has really transpired. And that's how I think that firms get themselves into trouble mm. is they, you know, they, they don't, they, they don't necessarily understand what's, what's really happening behind the scenes from a business perspective until they've now loaded up on contingency cases and suddenly they're in a cash crunch, can't make payroll and can't figure out why. Interesting. So, um, it sounds like almost like um, a bit of a, I'll say a bit of a high where you get like this, we win, right? right. I mean, we all feel good. And I can imagine you want to feel that way again and you probably pay yourself a bonus. Yep. And maybe, maybe a healthy bonus. And you go, boy, I'd like some more of these healthy bonuses. And Right. Or you pay down some of the debt you accrue in, in over that time to be right. able to carry that contingency case, not realizing that that accrued for that reason, just thinking that, oh, you know, business has been a little bit slow. Mm-hmm. Let me pay this back. And, you know, and, and not, not making the connection of how that happened and that this is directly related. And I, I don't want to indicate to anybody that the firm owners are not wise, not smart. They don't get it. Look, the biggest thing that firm owners tell me is they don't teach business in law school. Right. And it's very hard to make that connection when you're in it when you're sitting there in it. If you're sitting with a buddy and they're telling you their woes, you probably would connect the dots and say, oh, this is why that's happening. Yeah. But when you're in there, it's very difficult to, to be able to recognize it's happening. And then once you've dug the hole, once you've taken on these cases, you're not getting out of it because you've already put committed all this time and energy into it. You're not going to give it up. So what happens is you're now you're stuck in this quandary of, I've got these cases that are ongoing, who knows when they're gonna close, but I've also, we also got to earn money and all of my attorney's time is, be, is time is being taken by these contingency cases. So you end up in, the, uh, this, in this precipice where you may not even realize that you're on the brink of, of needing to close your firm because of that. So, I mean, it, it, not everybody is like that. Not everybody has this issue because there's plenty of firms that don't take on contingency cases, but this has been something that I've come across as well. So can I bring up a... a concept that it sort of falls into this category you said you've you've put in all this time and all this money and so you don't want to stop now Mm -hmm. this is a really really hard concept for me to get through Um, and it's called sunken costs it's the cost that you'd invest in something saying okay it's going to work and it could be an asset you're trying to buy it could be anything you say all right i've not only time but emotional energy and money 
and people have a really hard time, including me. It took a while. It's easier for me now, um, especially when I'm advising other people. It's hard for me personally um, to just say, okay, I've just spent all this time and money, but what's my outcome? What's my future look like if I keep going on this pattern and repeating it and just saying, okay, the costs are gone. It's done. Forget about it. Move on with your life. You're really better off just letting it go. Yeah, and, and it's true. And and really, I mean, we can we probably should find a good psychologist to bring onto the show to talk about what's happening yeah. in our minds behind the you know behind the scenes with this. But it's definitely there's human psychology at play. There's you know, uh, uh, but but it's worth it's even more than that because it's not the sunken costs. I don't think is the only thing. It's the feeling that you're that much closer to the finish line because of the work you've already done. Right. So it, it you, you don't know how close you are to the finish line, but you've got to be closer than you were before, you know, and, and that's, right. and, and that's the hard part. Like it, it's very difficult to walk away from that. And, and many won't. And um, it's unfortunate because they'll either go out of business or they'll find another f- source of cash until they until they get some of those wins right. but they're but they'll still be in the perpetual cycle because oh i solved it you know it i was able to get out of it so i'll, I'll keep going and um right. okay so i don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole here because okay. you've done a really good job of of laying out what the problem is and i don't want to leave our listeners with a problem so okay. what is the cash management solution and how can they start to, uh, how can our listeners start to implement the cash management solution and, and try to fix this for themselves? All right. So that, that's a great question. And I can't tell any given advice, uh, firm, listener, exactly what they should do for themselves. But here's a general framework that should work for just about any business of any type. Uh, Number one starts with bookkeeping. So your bookkeeping may be extremely accurate. It may be extremely beneficial for various reasons, but not set up to look at cash management. Um, I've worked with firms whose accountants set up their bookkeeping, so it makes it easier for the accountant to do the taxes at the end of the year. Um, Not a good way to go. So you need to set up with the thought in mind of number one, where's your income coming from? If you're a firm that has different types of income, I'm just going to take two off the cuff ones. I worked with a firm once. They did only two types of law. One was securities law and the other one was divorce law. And there is a reason. Totally different practice area. This is true. (laughs) It's a true story. And it's because the original partners, one did divorce and the other ones did securities. And for whatever reason, they formed a firm. And that was 30 years before I met them. Okay. A firm like that, for me, I'd want to know what's the income stream from securities law and what's the income stream from divorce law because it's two completely different types. And within securities, you might even actually have other types of income stream. One would be doing proactive securities work, um, offerings, et cetera, which is completely different than defense work. So setting up your income so you can easily look at the income streams 
to me is absolutely critical. That's number one. Number two is what you mentioned on the expense side. Two types of expenses. One is what's called cost of goods sold. It's the cost of producing the services. So that would be the attorneys in your firm or the paralegals or anything that's directly associated with perhaps the best way to say it is a billable hour. That's something you'd want to know also. So you could directly see, okay, here are my billable hours for each type of, of revenue stream. And what you're trying to figure out is, okay, this particular type of revenue, the securities work, it costs me 50 cents for each dollar I bring in versus the divorce law cost me 75 cents for every dollar I bring in. So you have an idea of what the margins are. So that's one type of expense. The other type of expense you want to set up is the general expenses, your office, your computers, the things that are spread out amongst all cases. And my rule of thumb is that anything that's going to cost a business more than about 1% of their revenue, I'd want to be looking at separately. Moshe, I don't know. Maybe you have a different rule of thumb than that. No, so let me ask you this. The, is, is this all step one, bookkeeping, broken down into this, revenue This is all expenses? step one. Gotcha. Bookkeeping is so important. I'll spend twice as much time as anything else. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's all bookkeeping. The reason why is because you want to see where your expenses are going. Yeah, and there's, and there's actually a ton of, of value in breaking down where the revenue is coming from more than just what is it costing me in cost of goods sold? What, and I don't use that term for um, yeah. the attorneys and paralegals, but uh, for lack of a better term right now, we'll continue with that. <laughs> right. um, so you also have marketing expenses well, and, you, mm -hmm. and marketing expenses might dictate being tied to specific revenue sources. You have accounts right. receivable where you might notice that certain revenue sources are taking longer to collect than others. And yeah. to your, to your point, when you, when you have this information, you're now armed with the solution before you even start, like without the information, you, you just know you have a problem. You just don't know why. Right. You know, you said you came from an IT background and so did I, and you're trying to set up yourself up to get reports because you can see what's happening. And so what you're describing now is classes inside of QuickBooks, which a lot of people, their accountants will be using QuickBooks. It's called classes. And so, okay, so now for that divorce part of the practice, how much of the marketing expense goes there? And you're spending 10X to get a divorce case than you are on the other one. You get a relative idea when you break it down into these classes. Absolutely. And so we could, probably go on for another five minutes talking about bookkeeping, but let's not. Okay. I like that idea. All I right. Think we, I think so, we might've lost some people already. All right. Sorry <laughs> about that. No, no, no. Don't apologize. Uh, hey, and, and so here's the end of the day. If you don't have good bookkeeping, none of this other stuff is going to work. So the next thing you do is get familiar and look for patterns. People don't know what they're spending their money on or where their income's coming from. And so you should be reviewing just at a macro level, monthly, how much did you spend on something? Why? Because two reasons. Number one, you can figure out what you're spending that you shouldn't be spending money on. But number two, there's mistakes made all the time. 
you get double invoiced, um, you get um, all of a sudden the supplier who you had at $100 a month increases to $500 a month without a really good blaring message. They send you a tech, something you missed. And so you want to be able to keep track of that. And those are easy, what I call easy fixes. You know, so, I just had this with my cell phone bill. My, I just found out that for my daughter's flip phone that I leased when she first got her phone, yeah. I am still paying $6 a month because at the end of the lease, it converted to a month-to-month -month payment, even though I already own the device. I just had to tell them I want to buy it for a dollar. And I, you know, I, it's $6 a month, so I haven't been paying attention to the, you know, to yeah. the bill, but, um, it's an, it's a perfect example of, you know, it's so easy for a, a charge to get hidden in, in these bills. And, you know, mine was six bucks, but yours could be 60, uh, 600. And, you know, if it's, if, if it's small enough to get lost in the haystack, then you won't, you may not notice it. Right. And so let, let me bring up a, another small thing, but could be really important. Some people put themselves on automatic bill pay. I'm just going to pay my cell phone bill automatically. I don't know if you do that or not, but it, it's very convenient. You save one minute per bill per month, but that's the challenge you can run into is that you don't know, you don't have control anymore and it's too easy to just avoid looking at it. I've got other things to do. So my recommendation is always pay your bills. Don't let it, don't just let it suck out of your account. Not to mention that if you're in real cash flow crunch, you want control. Are you going to pay it today because you get a discount? Or are you going to push it out a month or two months until you get that final turnoff notice? Yeah, and, and to that, to that um, uh, point, one of the things that the Profit First system and I discussed Profit First in uh, previous episodes of this podcast, and I'm just looking up to see which episode numbers they were. So it is episode 16 and episode 18. So in episode 16 and episode 18, I talk about the Profit First system, and I see that you have the Profit First book on your shelf behind you. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't put the, I didn't put it there on purpose. Yes, I do have it. So uh, but that, that system by Mike Michalowicz, one of the things that he teaches is to dedicate two days a month as your days that you're going to pay your bills. And, um, and he very specifically lays out why he chose those two days, but it doesn't have to be two days a month. It doesn't have to be the days he, the days he says, which is the 10th and the 25th. It could be whatever works for you. But mm -hmm. to your point, you also don't want to be in a situation where every day you're looking at bills and, and, and figuring out how to pay them because there's a certain amount of brain power and and psychological power required to go through that. And if you're inundating yourself every day with it, you'll never get anything else done. So yes, you, um, it's a really good practice to go through your bills yourself. And if you're, I mean, if you're the, the if, if you have a $20 million firm, I'm not telling you to go through your bills yourself, but the person in charge of going through the bills right. should be going through the bills as opposed to having them automated. Um, and, and that should be something that's done at during one block of time where they can dedicate to really process that through with the, you know, the brain power required and, um, and, and, and anything, you know, make any to-do list tasks for yourself to check out anything that's a discrepancy that looks wrong. That's not right. And so on. So, all right. I want to make sure we are able to get through everything. So we're going to look for patterns. We're going to look for patterns. We've already talked about what I call small opportunities. Okay. 
All right, now we're gonna look for big opportunities and let's bring back on the accounts receivable as a big opportunity for somebody. You can't fix it quickly all the time. But that's a whole topic in itself. There's a woman in Australia who specializes in accounts receivable, but I can tell you this, make sure your invoices are done properly and that they're understandable. That's number one. Number two, I do it. I recommend courtesy calls. Hey, did you see it came in? Do you see any problems? And there's a whole series of these things you can do proactively to make sure you're going to get paid as quickly as possible. So that's an example of a big thing that you can implement over time. Um, there's other examples, but let's move on to the next one. Yeah, I'm actually going to just jump in and say, okay, yeah. because I like to, I, whenever something comes up and I say, I, that should really be a subject matter that I talk about on another episode. I like to say it here because then my podcast producer adds it to my <laughs> list of topics. So, so afterwards, say, I'll get you the name of the woman in Australia. She wrote a book on it and it's brilliant. Yeah. So I definitely want to get her on the show. So David, if you can make that connection for me, that yeah. would be amazing. But on top of that, I have some ideas for my listeners on big opportunities. So I'm going to spend a couple of episodes talking about big opportunities. In particular, one of them is your rent. One of them is your accounts receivable. And one of them is your staffing. So those are, those are the, basically the th two biggest expenses and the one biggest revenue drain or lack of revenue coming in that um, that I think that you'll find when you start looking for these big opportunities. So I'm so going to dedicate some time on those topics. Awesome. And so I'll throw out one or two more quickly. Mm -hmm. One is productizing your what you offer mm -hmm. and doing it at fixed cost. And, right. and, and in, in conjunction with that, requiring upfront deposits if you're not doing it. I, I, this is sort of applicable across a lot of different businesses. Right. And I think that with deposits, I mean, many law firms who are working hourly, if not all of them, are taking a retainer up front. Um, right. What I think is happening is, is that you're doing a poor job when the retainer is used up in getting uh, that retainer replenished. And I think that's where they get into trouble. But I did do a podcast episode, and I'm looking up right now to see which one it is. It is... So the death of the billable hour, episode 26, followed by the anatomy of flat fee pricing, episode 27, where I went into detail discussing how you can basically, what you're saying, productize your offering. And that was in direct response to solving your accounts receivable problem. So definitely, we've already, we've covered some of that here, but we can go into that some more because uh, it's not just flat fee and, you know, productizing is, there's, there's more to it than that. And I'm sure that you, you have your, your opinions there as well, but we can, we can definitely touch on that. And what is the other one? Um, what well, was the deposits, but so I'll go to the next step and that's a simple cash flow forecast. So that's the simple, what do we expect in and when versus the outgoes and you try to forecast when you're gonna have extra and when you're not gonna have as much. And that sets you up to be able to start managing your cash and not just reacting to it. And um, I'm guessing that the cash flow forecast primarily requires you to know the seasonality of your revenue and the seasonality of your expenses, correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. And you, you want to have a pretty good handle on both, but this is best guess is better than nothing. 
Sometimes right. people feel really uncomfortable. I don't know. You know, it depends on when they pay me. That's okay. You can look for the patterns and you can see how long to, if, if your bookkeeping is set up properly. Right, right. So, that, so that's what I was going to say for the listeners. If you're not sure about your seasonality, go back into your books and do a profit and loss based on accrual as opposed to cash and look at your revenue. And you'll see when your revenue goes up, when it goes down, and then you'll know when your invoicing is peaking and when right. your invoicing is, is, is dipping. And that will give you, now if you know how long it takes for you to get paid, it'll give you the idea of which months you're gonna be cash tight and which months you'll be cash flush. And to, to your point, when you're cash flush, don't spend that cash if you know that you're gonna have a valley that you need to save for. Put earmark right. it, put it away so that you're prepared for that time. Separate right. bank accounts. I mean, really, just that's for the lean times. Yep. Um, just a little hint on looking for trends. Sometimes by month, it can swing wildly. Quarters don't. Year over year, quarters are fairly stable with tr true. That's why I call it, they call it seasonality because it changes with the seasons. Have you that's seen a that very good, that's a very good tip, David, and I appreciate that because it's it's so true. Um, when I'm working with clients and we're looking month to month, it it could just have to do with whether the check was was deposited on the 31st or on the first. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and and obviously you can have that quarter to quarter also, but what but but the more time you're looking at in a snapshot, the 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 better the data that you're going to get. But obviously you're looking for trends and patterns. You're not going if you start looking at years, that there could be huge differences year to year for different reasons. I mean, your firm is hopefully growing or it's contracting on purpose or by not, or not on purpose. But, um, you know, that's stuff that you'll see year to year. But um, I really like the idea of looking at quarters. I look at quarters very specifically when it comes to planning. Um, we plan by quarter, um, but it's, uh, I, I really like looking at your cash statement, your, your financial statements on a quarterly basis. I like yeah, that one. Absolutely. So then let me address the issue of time for especially the guy who's got, or gal, uh, men and the women who run larger firms that they wanna minimize their time, then I say, well, set up a dashboard. Actually, I think everybody should have a dashboard and it doesn't have to be fancy. It can be a simple spreadsheet. I recommend visuals, graphics, as opposed to just numbers because it's much easier for us to recognize patterns and graphics and that tell you the three, four, five, even 10 things that you feel are most critical. Accounts receivable and the aging of the receivable is definitely one of those things, but it could also be selling. We talked about categories of selling, so you can see where your trends are, the, and expense lines to see how they're falling in, especially as a percentage of revenue. So there's a few things that if you can just see that once a week, and not wait for twice, you can really quickly get a pulse, a pulse, a pulse, and you'll get to know your business financials really well by doing that. Perfect, so is there any other steps after the dashboard or is that does that sum it up? One last step, and that's putting a cash management system into place. The difference between being reactive and proactive is saying, okay, we're gonna set aside cash. This could be a whole episode in and of itself, but there's software out there that can help you manage your cash. It's making those conscious decisions to pay your bills today versus waiting. Anything that you 
control and make it a conscious decision is managing your cash. That's it. That's, that's the end. Okay. Awesome. So David, we're pretty close to out of time and I want to mm-hmm. wrap up. I'm just going to ask you, is there a specific tool for setting up the dashboard that you like that integrates with QuickBooks? Um, I know QuickBooks itself does not do a really good job with graphical reporting um, right. and creating that dashboard. So is this something that you do custom customized for your clients or is there a piece of software out there that you like that people can use to get that dashboard? I am looking for a piece of software. But right now I use Excel. And the reason why is I can boil it down to 12 numbers that come off a report and it takes five or 10 minutes to update by a bookkeeper. And it really, Excel is so customizable. There's all sorts of drawbacks because you can find mistakes all the time. But until I find a great tool or three or four tools to choose from, uh, that's where I go. And I'm hoping you get a flood of complaints that what about this tool? What about that tool? I'd love to hear about them. Sure. I mean, I'll share with you a tool that I use on the planning side that does pull the information from QuickBooks and it does create graphical dashboards. It just unfortunately is not extremely customizable because it's whatever they've assumed is the information needed to know, which is very high level. Um, But it's called LivePlan, L-I-V-E-P-L-A-N. And uh, for those of you listening, if you want to use this for your firm, especially for the planning, uh, we'll link up a link to that in the show notes. I'm a live plan expert advisor. I use that software with all of my clients in um, our quarterly planning for their business, as well as the the longer term, uh, I mean, longer, short, short term planning. So we we look at a forward looking three year snapshot with that. The other thing is, is I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine who's in a mastermind with me who is working with somebody else. They've developed a piece of software as well. I don't know the details about it. That's why I'm not sharing it here. Uh, but David, I will definitely introduce you to Eric and, and make that connection for you. And maybe that's something that might, uh, that might help with that. Um, so with that, I'm just going to really re- do a quick recap on this five-step process that you laid out for us. Number one, you got to have your bookkeeping squared away in set up in a way that it can be used to manage the business, not set up for your accountants. Now, obviously your accountant can then do what they need to do to figure out the numbers from there, but it needs to be presented in a way that you can make business decisions from it. Number two, look for patterns. Number three, um, create a cash flow forecast. Number four, set up a dashboard. Number five, put a cash management system in place. And that folks is the cash management project. Two little steps, look for big, little fixes and big fixes. That's the seven. Okay. All right. There you go. So David, this has been wonderful. First of all, you've been really good at articulating the problem um, to our listeners. And I really appreciate that uh, because you've done a really good job in, in teeing up the issue at the beginning of the episode and really helping us understand it in a way that I think that even people who are not accountants and even um, don't really step foot inside of QuickBooks will understand. Now, obviously, you need to look at a profit and loss statement. You need to look at a balance sheet to be able to even picture what we're talking about. But assuming you've seen one of those before, um, the the explanations make a lot of sense. So I I really appreciate you doing that. And 
then I also like what you've laid out for your for the system. Now, your item number five, the cash management system. For those of you who have not listened to episodes, what did I say they were for the profit first uh, 16 and 18, I think it was. Um, I think it's episode 16 and 18. I'm going to double check. But profit first is a cash management system for uh, for businesses. It is simple. I mean, it's complex in that it requires multiple bank accounts, but it's simple to implement and it is a system. There are many systems out there. It is not the system to use. And I'm sure David has his opinions on systems, but folks, if you have a system to manage your cash, you will be far better off than where you are today with no system. And that's the, that's, that's the key takeaway here is that paying attention to what's going on in, in your law firm is the first step to solving the problem of being tight on cash. So David, thank you so much for your time here. I'm sure that there thank are you. listeners here who are gonna want to learn more about you, get to know you. Why don't you tell them how they can keep in touch with you and ask you any questions that they just don't feel comfortable asking me? Well, so the best way to find me is on LinkedIn and or email me david at david com. that's my last name uh, s-a-f-e-e-r.com and i don't know if you'll have that in the show we'll notes put that, notes we'll put that not. in the show notes sure okay or or linkedin david Safir, and um that's my url you know it's the the, the vanity url and linkedin but I'm, I'm not hard to find um perfect and i'd love and we'll- to chat with anybody yeah, we'll link all that up in the show notes. And um, really, thank you so much for joining us today and for spending spending your time with us. And I, I hope that this, uh, this episode resonates with a lot of our listeners. I think it will. Thanks. Uh, it's great being here. Thank you for tuning into the Profit With Law podcast. Your feedback is extremely valuable to us as well as helping us reach more people with this valuable content. Please leave us a rating and review in your favorite podcast directory. Join us again next time when we are back with even more strategies to profit with law.